Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I didn't know if they were going to walk Kent or not, because obviously he's a double play type of guy, doesn't run very well, and he wasn't swinging the bat very well during the series. So I guess that was the decision they could make, that they go him or they go with a pinch hitter. But if I'm Atlanta, I do the same thing they do. I don't want Ken Herbeck beating me. I want someone like Gene Larkin trying to beat me with the bases loaded and all the pressure on him. And I think I would do the same thing. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's interview series from Phenom to the Farm. I am your host, Kyle Banduho. Today, we are talking to Gene Larkin, seven-year big leaguer with the Twins and walk-off hero of the 1991 World Series. Some background on me, personally. As a child, I watched the 1991 World Series VHS on nearly a weekly basis, so I don't think I can overstate just how great this was having Gene on the show to, you know, we obviously talk about the pinch hit that changed his life, that 91 series, those, you know, those late 80s, early 90s Twins teams, but we also talk about the years that led into that, developing into an All-American at Columbia University, moving through the minors in the 1980s, that kind of Bull Durham era, breaking into the big leagues and learning routine and the art of the pinch hit and, you know, of course, how that leads into his his pinch hit walk-off single against Alejandro Pena in the 1991 World Series Game 7. It was a huge treat for me personally that Gene took the time. Hope everyone else enjoys it. Episodes of Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet and you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a five star rating and a review. Also, make sure to subscribe to baseballamerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. The top 10 lists are rolling out. Uh, at time of recording, the Braves just dropped, but those are going to keep on coming throughout the offseason. Uh, plus, future projection with Carlos Colazo and Ben Badler is coming at you. Go subscribe to that. Word you get your podcast and check out the the normal ba podcast feed the college pod is going they're talking signing day fall ball stuff just all the good stuff at ba always a good time to be a subscriber and with that let's talk to gene larkin all right joining in for today's episode of from phenom the farm he was a 20th round pick of, in the 1984 draft out of columbia university his former big leaguer gene larkin gene thanks so much for joining from phenom to the farm absolutely kyle love to be here I have been I've been looking forward to this. I think as everyone who listens to this podcast know, I am a a huge Minnesota Twins fan. Uh, so this, this is this is a real treat for for especially me. But Gene, uh, let's take it back to your upbringing. You grew up in in New York. Were you Mets or Yankees? A big Yankee fan did not like the Mets. You can't have uh, you can't be partial to both teams when you're growing up in New York. Whatever sport you pick, your one team and you go with it. And uh, my dad was a big Yankee fan, so he instilled me to uh, love the Yankees and uh, despise the Mets. So um, we didn't have an opportunity when I was a kid to have the interleague play, which would have been fun for me to watch growing up, but uh, always a big Yankee fan. So not to, not to step over, you know, we're, we're going to run through your entire career, but just what <laughs> your, your first AB in, in Yankee stadium, what was that like? Well, you know what? It's funny that it took me a long time to get my first hit in Yankee stadium. I was really nervous, uh, obviously playing, uh, before family and friends, every time you come into New York, um, it always put a lot more pressure on myself. And I don't remember my first at bat. Um, it might have been against Tommy John in a, in a night game. I think uh, I don't know what I did, but uh, it took me a long time to kind of relax playing the Yankees. And I do know my biggest hit in Yankee Stadium was a, a home run against uh, Rick Roden, um, which uh, kind of got the the ball rolling for me coming to New York and play kind of felt a lot more relaxed after that at bat and had, had a better, better number of bats after that. But it took me a while to get relaxed and get my first hit. I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, let's, let's roll back to, to childhood in, uh, in NYC in New York. How much baseball were you playing year round as a, you know, especially as you got into high school and stuff like that? That's a lot. It was a lot different back then, Kyle. I was, I was more of a two sport guy. Um, quite frankly, I was a better basketball player growing up than baseball player. Um, I got a lot more opportunities for, uh, for colleges and basketball didn't have too many, but 
I was always a basketball, baseball guy. I played a little bit of football in middle school, but didn't play football in high school. But much better basketball player. Um, I like the speed of the game of basketball, but um, I really didn't find myself loving the game of baseball till I got to high school. Um, and then I just kind of fell in love with the preparation of it. I mean, I would, no problem having somebody hit me 50 to 100 ground balls a day, taking as much BP as I could. And, and uh, but uh, it was definitely a two sport guy. Didn't play, you know, in the off season, didn't train in the off season for baseball as I was trying to do all the sports. Was your switch hitting natural or was that learned? No, that's a funny story. I, I've always switched hit with my dad, you know, BP with my father, but I never took a real game swing until my freshman year in college. Um, and frankly, it was because of my dad telling me I don't hit the curveball very well right on right. I'm a natural righty. And he just said, you know, if you're going to try to be a good college baseball player at the Division One level, you got to see if you can do this because you hit fine in BP, but you have to have the guts and the courage to to want to do that in the game. Um, so it, I did that my first my first year in college in Columbia. Um, that first year, I really had a tough time pulling the ball from the left side. But uh, when I left Columbia, I was a much better hitter from the left side than the right side because I have so many more opportunities with right-handed pitches. So it kind of it kind of made me the hitter that I was in college and then have a, a very good minor league career too as a switch hitter. Well, let's talk about getting to Columbia because okay. how are your how are your grades? I had good grades. I had very good grades. I went to a very tough high school, a high school called Chaminade High School, which is a private high school in, on Long Island. Um, played basketball and baseball there. Very tough academically. Um, taught you how to prepare and be disciplined with your academics. And uh, but I had, I had very good grades. I mean, I, I made honor roll um, every year. Um, but my you know, back in those days, they didn't have ACT scores. They just had SATs. And I had very average SAT scores. Um, but uh, I think Columbia is willing to override my average SAT scores because of my good GPA that I came out of school with. And with the combination of that and playing baseball, they allowed me to uh, enroll at Columbia. So what was the tougher transition for you, the Ivy League classrooms or Ivy League baseball in the field? Oh, classrooms. It's, it, it was tough, um, you know. A lot of very brilliant people went to that school and I was probably average intelligence at best, but I always knew that, uh, you know, my goal was to try to get the best education as I could. My parents definitely instilled it was about baseball and at school at the same time and don't waste an opportunity that Columbia would provide for me academically. So I was an ac economics major, um, got decent grades there, came out of there with that nice piece of paper from Columbia so that if baseball didn't work out. I would have an opportunity to get some type of real job in, in, the, in the real world. Well, with the baseball, did being fairly local give you any sort of leg up or help adjust versus guys who maybe came in from other states or different parts of the country? Um, at Columbia, when I played, there wasn't a lot of guys outside of the East Coast um, on our team. It was most, kind of a re regionally recruiting, the coach did. Um, but, uh, you know, the reason, one of the reasons why I went to Columbia outside of the fact that it was academically very, very strong is that the coach gave me an opportunity to play as a freshman. Um, you know, I, he kind of came in two years prior to that class that he had. And, uh, I think four out of the five or four infielders, I think out of the, uh, out of the starting nine were freshmen at the time. So we kind of had a good turnover there and allowed me to play right away, which to me was very, very important. Um, uh, wasn't a guy who liked to sit on the bench, obviously, and, and uh, got a good opportunity, number of games under my belt as a freshman and helped me, you know, spur my career in college. So in the col in college baseball in the early 80s, it's really starting to gain popularity. Yep. The college was starting to be broadcast on ESPN. The sport's getting a little more national recognition. Right. What did what did you know, what was college baseball life like in the 80s? What was the travel? No, it's funny. My my first my first league Ivy League game was against Ron Darling in, in Yale. Oh, in and Yale. Yeah, I believe if my memory serves me correct, Kyle, I think he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated a week or two before that game. So we all heard about Ron and his ability um, to pitch and uh, he beat us that particular game. But I kind of that was kind of an eye opener for me that a guy that good was playing in the Ivy League and competing with us at Columbia. So like I said, he beat us, but it was it was kind of fun to to face that type of uh, that type of guy on the mound for the first time as a freshman. So playing as a freshman and facing guys like that, did you have pro aspirations right away? Was it something that you were hoping was going to come after baseball? Yeah, that was that was my hope and that was my dream. Um, you know, when you leave high school into college, I think everybody has that dream. How how tough is it going to be? Um, and in those days, 
the Ivy League wasn't as competitive as it is right now. Um, it's it's real good baseball right now. I'd say it's, it was last when I played in the 80s, it was average baseball. But it, it did give me a, a sense that, you know what, I can compete with these guys at a young age as a freshman competing with guys, juniors and seniors. It gave me an idea of like, if I keep working at it and get stronger and going back to the switch hitting, if I develop myself as a good switch hitter, it, it might be a, something that I can get to. I, I was a pretty good third baseman in college. So, uh, you know, I knew in the back of my mind that that was my ultimate dream to get there, but it was going to take a lot of hard work to get there. So we talk about development, uh, the 1984 season, this was, this was pre Barry Bonds, but did you feel like how Barry Bonds probably felt in, in 2001, you slash 429, 491, 905, you set Columbia single season records for home run, total bases, RBIs. Like when you've got it going like that, are you trying to keep up with other guys in the conference or nationally? Are you looking at stats? Like, are you thinking about being an all American? No, I mean, I, I, all American and Ivy League don't go hand in hand at all. But it, I did have a very good year, a very consistent year. Um, I had not hit for a lot of power my first three years at Columbia. And it wasn't because we were playing in a, in a very huge ballpark. It was a very hitter-friendly ballpark. But I was more of a line drive guy, use the whole field type guy. But then early in the first few games of my senior year, the, the ball kind of went out of the park for me. I got stronger. I really hit the weights hard the prior year um, to get bigger, stronger, to put some weight on and that definitely had an impact on my bat speed and my, my hitting mechanics. And um, I had some really, really good games as a senior and, you know, hitting 19 home runs in 40 games is, is something I never thought I would be able to do, but it, you know, everything just came together for me as a senior. And uh, I had a very, very good year. Well, you've, you get named an All-American, uh, you know, on that team, B.J. Serhoff, the eventual first yeah. overall pick, uh, Rafael Palmero, Barry Larkin, so there's a future Hall of Famer in that class. Yeah. A lot of those guys got taken very early in the draft, Palmero, yes, Larkin, Serhoff, all first rounders. You had to wait a little longer. Walk me through Walk me through draft day. Like, what were your expectations going through that? Well, my expectations were I didn't, I didn't have any idea where I was going to go. There wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, talk uh, amongst – the scouts, you know, I kind of felt that my year uh, it allowed me to get drafted at some particular point in time, but I had no uh, aspirations getting drafted real high. I just wanted a chance. Um, you know, I didn't want to go to the real world, so to speak. I wanted to play baseball and see how far I could take. I mean, that's the ultimate dream. So um, I didn't really worry about it. I, I just remember it was just a normal day for me. I was just waiting for someone to connect with me, whether I got drafted or not. And uh um, you know, the 20th round doesn't seem like a lot, but for me, it was like, you know, now I can move on. I reached my goal to get drafted. Now I got to show people that I deserve to be drafted and, and start off good as a professional. What did the signing bonus look like in the 1984 20th round? $2,500, my friend, 2,500. Gotta uh, say it hasn't really changed that much. Actually, a gentleman named uh, Herb Stein was the, uh, was the scout who signed me. And he was in, uh, he, I remember he was in my kitchen with my family just telling me, you know, they were happy that we had an opportunity to draft me. And um, like I mentioned earlier, I was a third baseman in, in college. And uh, again, remember, I, I grew up in New York, so I wasn't following the Western Division at the time. I didn't really follow the Twins very well. I was more, you know, follow the Yankees, follow the Red Sox, the Orioles, those type of things. Um, so I really followed the Twins. I didn't know too much about them. And um, he did tell me at my kitchen table, said, you know what, we're going to try to make you a first baseman because we have a guy named Gary Gaetti as a third baseman. And I didn't, you know, recognize the name too much. And I didn't, didn't realize that they were moving me to first base. And they didn't tell me there was a guy named Ken Herbeck playing first base over there too. So I kind of, if I knew that, I'd say, well, that doesn't really make any sense either. Cause I'm not going to beat out Ken Herbeck, you know, but, uh, it was I me. Mean, 2,500 bucks for me was, you know, obviously wasn't a lot of money, but uh, again, it was just more about getting drafted and having an opportunity to play at the next level. Mm -hmm. And you, you go into minor, minor league ball kind of in like the Bull Durham area, right? The the pre-Bull yeah. Durham area. It's right, you know, it's a couple of years before the movie comes out. What is what is life like, especially in the low minors then? Elizabethton, Visalia, what's the lodging like? What's the food? Are you able to stretch yeah. your paychecks a little farther than the guys Heck who get those paychecks no. can now? It was, uh, <laughs> it was bologna sandwiches and Dr. Pepper for me. Um, um, the lowest that's level a nice life, though. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's a good meal. <laughs> the lowest level was uh, rookie ball. And for the Twins, it was the Appalachian League. Um, and uh, so I was at uh, Elizabethan, Tennessee. 
for two months. And I, frankly, I was one of the older guys there. I had a college degree. A lot of guys that start out the rookie ball level are right out of high school or a junior college type thing. So I was kind of one of the older guys and um, kind of more of the mature guy. But, um, you know, it was it was fun. It was, again, using wood back for the first time consistently, which was different, um, getting acclimated to that. Um, I remember we played uh, Greg Maddox. He was at Pulaski Braves. We faced some good guys. Um, so we, we faced very, very good competition. Again, it was just more about getting acclimated to pro ball, playing every day, traveling longer bus rides, not eating very well. Meal money was ridiculously low. Um, trying to find a place to, uh, to live with a few different guys that you had never known before until they become teammates. So it was a lot of growing up and then trying to figure out how to compete at the professional level is it's difficult. And, uh, um, you know, that people tell you that when you get to the big leagues, you kind of say, well, you look back on your minor league career and you realize how, how much, uh, pride you have in going through kind of a, that lifestyle. It's not an easy style of life at all. What were the, the crowds in minor league baseball like back then? Cause it was a little more, it was right before it turns into more event-based and like the, you know, the family form of entertainment with all the game, you know, winning mattered a little more back then. Yeah. So it was more, it was more like small towns. Elizabethan is a small town. So we had a usual nice group of people coming in there. Um, There's a lot of host families that are taking care of us. So they were always at the games, but never obviously large crowds at the lower level of minor league ball. Um, my next year I went to Visalia, California and a ball again, uh, small northern town in California, kind of a, a uh, average type of uh, number of crowd. Then we got to Orlando and double A, and that's when you kind of got the, the bigger crowd, at least bigger for what I was accustomed to. Um, better brand of ball in double A. Um, and then triple A was uh, Portland, Oregon. I was only there a month, but uh, decent crowds. Um, so every level that you go up, you get, it seemed like you get more of a, uh, a typical good atmosphere with the number of people in the stands. Well, you, you seemingly adjusted to the minor league competition pretty well. You carried good numbers at every stop. You moved steadily, no real like hiccups. Were there, were there ever any hiccups that don't show on a stat sheet or did you feel like you just had this constant momentum running through the system? Yeah, I, I felt in the minor leagues, at least the, until I got the triple A, the rookie ball, A and double A that I, I did very well. I competed well. Um, I was pretty consistent. I drove in 100 runs in A ball and double A. Um, again, didn't hit a lot of home runs at those levels, but uh, put the ball in play, usually hit third um, in the lineups. And I kind of felt that, uh, you know, I belonged at those levels. And, uh, you know, back then there used to be a, a periodical called the Sporting News, and uh, they had all the uh, minor league teams and the stats and stuff like that. So, Whatever level I was at, I kind of followed the other twin minor league teams, who was playing, um, how the guys ahead of me were doing. So it was kind of a, a goal type thing. I wanted to compete well at the level I was in, but always trying to look for what do I have to do to make another level? I was having a good year at A ball. Were they going to be bringing me up to double A at some point in the season? And same thing with double A. Never happened. I always played at the full level, A and double A. But I competed really well in the batter's box. I had some pretty good years in, at the, uh, the lower levels of minor leagues. You mentioned when they signed you, they said they had Gaetti at third. They moved you to first. Herbacks there. When do you? How, at what point in your minor league tenure do you start looking at the depth chart in the big leagues and saying, "I, I need to figure out"? Because you got Bernanski and Gladden on the corner right. outfield spots as well. When did you start taking a look at that? So you know, when I played in the minor leagues, I really wasn't worried about the big league team. I was just worried about making an impression that they would see me as someone who they might be able to bring up, whether it was because of an injury or making a team right away. Um, I didn't really follow the big league team, so to speak. I was just more concerned about doing what I was supposed to do. And then when you're playing, you're also getting evaluated by other teams as well, um, other scouts as well. So if there was an, a, a trade opportunity, approach the twins and try to get me. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story that, uh, my first big league camp was 1987 and uh, I had just um, had a very good year in double A in 86. I was the twins uh, player of the year in the minor leagues. First big league camp was 87. It was the first time I met all the, all the guys, Puckett and Herbeck and guys like that um, and watched Kent Herbeck take BP, a few rounds of BP, some ground balls at first base. And I will tell you, Kyle, I knew immediately 
knew immediately I was not going to beat Ken Herbeck out as a player, no matter how hard I worked. He was that good, very, very smooth around the back, tremendous power hitter, very easy swing. Um, so it was kind of an eye opener there. Not that I wasn't going to be able to make the team. I felt that if I could compete, I could make the team, but I knew I was never going to be that top first baseman on the Minnesota Twins because watching him play for a short period of time, he was that good. So you watch her back, then what do you, what do you go back and tell yourself? Like, where do you say, you know, where do I fit in? Yeah, I was fortunate because, in, you know, obviously the American league has designated hitter. So there's going to be a room for you if you can hit. Um, but I did tell the, uh, the manager when they, when they sent me down um, a few weeks before camp broke in 87, when they sent me down, Tom Kelly and Andy McPhail were in the, in the manager's office telling me that they liked what I saw. They saw but, um, you know, I wasn't going to be good enough to make the team out of uh, out of camp. And I said, listen, I, what I just told you, Kyle, I don't see myself playing first base here. Is there another position that I could try to play in AAA to help me get a better chance to play up in the big leagues? And they agreed with me and they said, well, we're going to try to put you out in the outfield. Um, you run OK. You got a pretty good arm. Let's go see if you can try to run the ball down in the outfield. And that's what they did. My first few weeks in AAA was uh, playing left field and it wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. I had some really bad games out there because I had never played the outfield at any level. I was always an infielder at every level, which was, uh, you know, playing live baseball in AAA as a new, as a new position was tough. Um, and I had a, a lot of, a lot of help, but uh, it wasn't easy. And uh, fortunately for me, in May of uh, 87, um, the Twins had an injury. Tom Nieto was one of the catchers. He got hurt in a collision at home plate, and uh, he had to go on to the Sable list. And I had gotten off to a pretty decent start the first month of AAA, and then they called me up right there, and uh, I never did go back down. Yeah, you're doing my job for me. Walk me through that call-up. What's, what's it like getting the call? Yeah, I, I don't remember if I was in Tucson or Phoenix. I know I was out in Arizona. Uh, we had just finished up a game and I went back to my hotel room and uh, Charlie Manuel was, uh, was our manager. And I got a phone call and he said, that's he a wanted, name right there. Yeah. He wanted to see me in his, uh, in his room. And I said, well, one of two things are going to happen. Either I got traded or something better than that is going to the big leagues. So the manager doesn't usually call you in. I didn't do anything wrong that particular day. So I knew it wasn't going to air me out. And he called me in and said, uh, Nieto got hurt and they're going to give you a chance and that they're, uh, they're playing in Cleveland. Their first next, next series is in Cleveland, and I got to go out there. So um, I immediately got on the phone, called my folks, called every one of my friends, and I told them I was, you know, the term is going to the show. And I told them I was going to the show, and they were just ecstatic. And, you know, packed up my bags, got on the flight, and headed to Cleveland. What's it like walking into that big league clubhouse for the first time? And this team is headed to the World Series. You don't know it at the time, but this, right. team, this is a, a solid team. Right. Fortunately for me, again, 87 is my first big league camp. So I got to see those guys, got to know a little bit for a short period of time I was in camp. So it wasn't a complete unknown, seeing the different personalities. Um, got walked into the, the Cleveland um, clubhouse, met TK, Tom Kelly, the manager again. He kind of told me what my role was going to be. Um, and it was going to be something that he didn't really know yet because uh, – he didn't know how long I was going to be there, whether we we're going to try to find another player and bring me back down to AAA. So he was very, very honest with me. Didn't know what my role was going to be. Um, I didn't play the first two games there. And I did play the third game of the series and uh, against Craig Swindell. And I uh, was two for four in my first game. How much uh, experience had you had beforehand in your past past baseball travels in, in taking ground balls off asphalt and fielding fly balls with a, <laughs> under a white roof? None. I had none. And that was a big adjustment, um, especially the roof, the pop-ups in the roof. That was really hard. And like I mentioned, they tried to make me an outfielder. And when I got called up, I did take some fly balls out there. And uh, and it, it was tough. It was tough. Playing, playing, on, playing the infield on turf is easy, you know, frankly. Um, back then, the, the turf was hard, like you said, it was like concrete. But very rarely a ba uh, bad hop. You just have to be quicker, get your hands down because the ball gets upon you so fast. So I think he playing playing infield with turf is easy. I really do. And you mentioned you never went back down. So you're you're taking 85 games to acclimate yourself to the big leagues. There's a lot that goes in. There's the on field stuff. There's the off field stuff. Yep. How to carry yourself as a big leaguer. Who did you? I mean, that's a. It was a young clubhouse. Looking at it, I mean, 
that almost the entire starting nine was under 30 that future hall of famer who's only 27 like who do who did you lean on like who are the who are the vets to tell you this is how we do things here yeah so i kind of you know i was always a guy that kept my mouth shut just play the game um you know watched how they they handle things during good times and bad and tom kelly was a great guy about just just play the game the right way respect the game hustle on and off the field um, but the older guys like uh, the Roy Smalley's of the world or the, or the Randy Bushes, those are the kind of the role players that I watched. How do they prepare themselves? Again, this is the first time that I'm sitting on the bench pretty consistently. Um, so I've never really understood how, when do you start getting ready as a pinch hitter? When do you start ready if you're, if you're a DH? What do you, what, what do you do in between at bats if you're a designated hitter? You kind of just talk your way through it. And, um, what works for one guy might not work for another guy, but at least you see different, uh, different options that people do. For me, when I was a designated hitter, um, after every at bat, I would go up to the weight room a little bit, just keep stretching, swing a weighted bat up there. So it's almost like you're playing defense when you're not playing defense. So that's because so that's what you're accustomed to uh, as a minor league player playing every day. You wanted to get, you know, you wanted to stay in the game at some point in time you didn't want to just be pinch hitting four times which is a designated hitter guy does since we're going to talk about pinch hitting at some point what what's the routine when you're a pinch hitter especially like if you you're not playing that day but you know it might come up um you know what how do you how do you stay ready for that yeah so again i'm a switch hitter so i know who's in the bullpen for the opposition i know what they're going to do as far as what are their best pitches or what are their best two pitches um, you know, whether I'm pinch hitting in the sixth inning or the ninth inning, nothing really changes mentally about that. Um, you know, as the game progresses, you kind of have an idea who you might pinch hit for based on who's on the mound we're facing, that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, watching film was just starting to get into it back then. So we'd go up to the clubhouse, watch how the guys threw the ball and then the more experience you got and the more at bats you got against certain pitches, you have kind of a mental idea of like, how has he been trying to get you out in the past? What's his strengths? How does he try to use his strengths against my weaknesses? Does he have a tendency to throw a certain pitch with two strikes? All that stuff comes into play when you think about it. But um, I, I just kind of like a lot of trial and error for myself too. I was up there. I was up in the Billies for seven years. I certainly in year six and seven, I certainly have a much better idea how to perform as a pincher than my first few years. So as you know, as that rookie season of yours progresses, you got when did you start feeling like, hey, we've got a shot to to make it to the World Series? Like this is going to be a thing. Yeah, I guess midway through, um, you know, we we had some great home records, but we didn't win a lot of games on the road. We were a very inconsistent team on the road. Um, I can't really tell you why that was the case, but we certainly dominated at home quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we weren't a super team. Uh, that was without question, but we were pretty consistent at home. And, uh, you know, we knew it was either going to be Kansas City, Oakland, us, you know, the top three teams there. Um, and every time we seemed like we played them, um, there was always really good games in the Metrodome. And toward the end of the season, the fans really started to come out in, in, in numbers and they had a really good idea that this could be a very special year for us. Well, then you guys make it to the 87 series. It's a, the, you guys are the, have the home team advantage. So game one in Minnesota, when you, when you walk out, when you guys do like player intros and stuff and the place yeah. is packed out and the Metrodome is loud, what is, is there like a, is there a pinch me moment? Is there, are you able to take it in or is that something that you can only really look back in retrospect at how crazy it was? Yeah. You realize, you know what, again, growing up, you watch these games on TV and you really don't understand how, how the crowd impacts the game or what the guys are feeling when they're announced and they go on the first or third baseline. And then all of a sudden that's you being announced and you listening to the crowd, it's, it's, it is a surreal moment in the beginning. And anyone who tells you that they're not nervous in that particular situation, I think most guys will tell you that they're nervous almost every game they play until the first pitch is thrown. Um, it seems like when you play in the playoffs in the World Series and every play is magnified, you can't make an error. You don't want to give up a home run. You want to do your job as a hitter, get the bunt down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything is magnified. And, and when you're not playing on the field and you're just a, a guy on the bench watching, you're almost like a fan. You're as nervous as a fan would be. You kind of live and die with every pitch. So 
Um, again, in 87, I was just basically a pinch hit in the World Series. But I will tell you that um, in the World Series uh, against the Cardinals that year, uh, Tom Kelly did a very nice thing for me. We had a kind of a blowout in game one, and he put me out to play defense in the ninth inning. Um, he took Kent out and just gave me an opportunity to play defensively, which was a great, great thing for me to do because, again, I was just a young kid my rookie year, just going to be a pinch hitter. But going on the field in a World Series game in game one was a really, really nice thing for him to do to me. This is going to come up in when we talk about the 91 series as well. And then with the, the series, the World Series we've been watching, we're recording this as the, the World Series is going on episode. It's going to drop a little after that. But it is there a difference in the dugout, you know, maybe no one would admit it at the time when you have a, when you have a starter, when you have like a Viola or a Bly Levin, a guy who you know is going to take the ball and probably give you seven, eight good innings. And, you know, I'm, I'm not knocking the strategy of, of today, but just different times in that, in that series, Viola trotted out three times, you know, was, was the world series MVP. Is there, you know, knowing that a guy would give you nine if you need it and you have Bly Levin, who's a hall of famer, Viola, who's a Cy Young yeah. winner. Does that kind of quell the nerves a little bit when you have a guy like that on the Hill? Yeah, there's, there's no question, Kyle, that the game has changed considerably from a pitching perspective. Back when I played, you had three or four really good, legit starters that, you know, if they didn't go to the sixth or seventh inning, they felt they didn't do their job. So if you bring up Frank or you bring up Bert Bly Levin in 87, yeah, as a, as a teammate, you knew those guys are going to go and compete really, really well. Even if they didn't have their best stuff that particular day, um, they were going to compete and give everything they had. Because um, they kind of felt, in my opinion, that they were embarrassed if they didn't go five or six or seven innings, that they didn't do their job. Now, the game nowadays has changed considerably. You have the openers, and they're going one, one and two-thirds innings, and that's their job. But back then... In 87, with Frank and Bert, the top two guys that, you know, they were going to be pitching. If they don't pitch well, we don't have any chance to win against the Tigers or the Cardinals in 87. And, and uh, Frank, obviously, in 87 had a tremendous year. He was our number one guy and pitched every big game and um, nerves of steel. You know, he was the kind of guy that really got nervous before the game was starting. But once the game started and he had his pitches and he, he really competed hard and was very, very uh, nasty, frankly, from a hitting perspective. So you guys, you win the World Series at home. What time did you get back to wherever you were living that <laughs> night or that morning, I guess? Yeah, it was, uh, I don't even know. I don't remember. It was a long, long night, obviously. And, you know, I look back how far that I had come. Again, when you win a World Series, number one, you get to the big leagues, number one, as a rookie. And then all of a sudden, as a rookie, you win the World Series. It's like, how do you top that as a professional player? You're thinking back when you're eight or nine years old, playing with your brother in the backyard, bringing up the names of the guys you watched in the World Series. And, um, and then all of a sudden, you're the guy on the team, didn't do too much to win it, but your guy on the team, the one of the 25 guys, and you're jumping for joy on the mound after the game. And and then, uh, you know, you're celebrating with your teammates in the clubhouse and having a few pops and uh, getting home as safe as you can. But it was a long, long night. And the next morning you wake up and you see people want to talk to you. The newspapers have it all written out. It's It was a fun time for us in 87. So for 88, is is World Series hangover a real thing? And I'm talking the the season, not the, the night yeah. after Game 7. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, in 88, we had a very good season, real good season. We might have had a better record in 88 than we had in 87. Oakland just had a terrific year. But – um in camp in 88 it was the same type of deal we worked hard um tk wasn't a type of guy that took any nonsense or complacency if you were complacent he let you know about it um we had a really good team um we were just got beaten out very very close race though but oakland it was there a year but there was definitely i don't think there was any hangover we just played very very well we just got you know outplayed by that one team well in that year you're playing more regularly than you did your your rookie year how long does yeah. it take to get you, talk, you know, talked about the routine of being a DH and stuff like that. How long does it take to get settled into the day-to-day -day of the big leagues? That's living situation. That's travel. Yeah. That's being a professional. How long do you really feel like, I'm settled? I'm here. I am a big leaguer. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think when you're like me, 
you know, I was fighting for my spot. It seemed like every, every camp. So I don't think you feel like you're, you're there. At least I never did. Um, I always felt that there was someone on my heels from AAA or AA that were trying to, just like I was trying to do in 85 and 86. Um, but you know, you go through, you go through a few years and then you say, can you compete at this level? Um, I'd pretty, I had a, I had a one real good year at over 500 at bats. I drove in 70 runs as a primarily a, a DH, but you know, I played a number of games at first base too. And I kind of felt more comfortable playing both defense and hitting at the big league level, but you never, to me, I never felt comfortable enough where I'd say, well, now I've got it made. I'm going to have a 15 year career here, that type of deal. But, uh, but I, again, I came along at a really good time, a really good group of guys that I played for. I have tremendous respect for the manager and coaching staff that I had to play for during those seven years. But um, every year was kind of a, you know, mentally I'm battling this out because I don't know if this is going to be my last year or not. And then you're, you're a finance guy now. Financially, it's, it's not the same as far as pay disparity between the lowest guy and the, the, you know, the guy in the league minimum and the guy, you know, there's no one in your dugout making $30 million a year, but like Kirby right. Puckett was making a couple million dollars a year, a couple guy, you know, is there any, as a young guy, is there any pressure of like keeping up with the Joneses or you got to act a certain way, spend a certain way as far as being a big leaguer? The guys kind of, it kind of is what it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I never did. I mean, when I when I first, uh, I think the minimum big league salary when I joined in '87 was sixty thousand, right around sixty thousand. And there were a few guys making a million bucks, um, but I don't think our team even had that type of personality. It wasn't a as good as Kirby Puckett was, and he was the face of kind of the franchise um, during my tenure there. You know, he, he never showed off his wealth or anything like that. Ken Herbeck was a guy who made very, very good money, a Bloomington, Minnesota guy. You would never know that Kent was a big league ball player, the way he dressed and he, he acted. He was just one of the guys. He Seen a lot of pictures his, of him in Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. Yeah, he never he never lost his, uh, his, his Minnesota roots at all. And um, he's, to this day, you would never know that he was so successful as a baseball player, just a down-to-earth person. So I think the, most of those guys that were on our team were like that, and uh, I kind of just try to fit right in. You mentioned just Minnesota, the town of Minneapolis. You grew up in New York, big Yankees fan, different different media environment there. What were the maybe the benefits of playing in, in in Minnesota where there's a little less of a glare on you, especially especially back then? Yeah, and, and that's a great question. I think if you can't get along with the media in the Midwest, specifically Minnesota. Yeah. And if you're going to be complaining about how people treat you in Minnesota, then you can't make it as a professional because again, growing up in the East coast, um, watching how the New York media handled their athletes, Boston, it's tough to play in those cities. If you don't win right away, if you go into a slump, they let you hear about it. The Midwest Minnesota fans, they kind of let you a little bit, you know, as long as they see you playing hard and doing your job, they're not going to, you know, rip you. The media is kind of easy on you a little bit. I mean, they'll tell the truth if you're not having a good, good uh, series or anything like that. And they'll tell it like it is, but it's not like they're trying to rip your head off too and, 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 and talk down to you or anything like that. So I kind of felt that they were real fair to everybody, not just me. And as you get settled in, and especially when you're a regular, I'm always interested to hear what the game day routine looks like, at least for like a night game, because, you know, lights go on at seven, but you you're there way before that. How what got Gene Larkin ready to, you know, for first pitch at seven yeah. five? So seven o'clock, seven o five was the, the first pitch. I usually got to the park between two and two thirty um, just we had a little bit of a weight room weight, so it weren't a big deal back then. Um, we had a very small weight room. They were in Oakland. Yeah, they were in Oakland. <laughs> they did have a very nice weight room for various reasons, too. And it seemed like they're a lot bigger than everybody else, too. And they're, they're, they got bigger and bigger as the years went on. Um, but my, my routine was really simple. I'd, I'd get there 2 to 2.30, maybe have a bite to eat, then I'd go in the weight room a little bit, stretch out, hit a little. If I was in the lineup, I would lift less. If I was... Not in the lineup, I would lift a little bit more, um, knowing that I wouldn't be called upon till late in the game. Um, and then we took infield, probably, I think it was uh, 4.35, 4.45. So, I mean, I didn't feel BP. And then we get off the, back then they played, we did BP and then we did infield outfield. You know, very rarely do you see infield outfield now. Um, but we always took an infield, We, you know. Kirby Puckett and Herbeck always tried to tell Tom Kelly we don't need an infield, but he was old school. He wanted to, everybody to take a nice, normal infield, outfield. So 
that was the routine. You know, uh, if you were playing, you were in one of the uh, the last two hitting groups. If you were one of the non-starters, you were hitting the first two hitting groups in BP. Because and then if you didn't even know the lineup, but you saw the BP groups, you kind of had an idea of whether you were going to be playing or not. So you mentioned Tom Kelly and, and being old school. His his success, I guess, speaks for itself. The guy won two World Series. He managed in Minnesota until he didn't really want to manage anymore. And then Guardy had it for forever right. too. Long, you know, stretch of continuity um, as a as a Twins manager. What I mean, what about his managing style worked? What I mean, it well, he was between the lines. He's a genius. Um, you know. He had his core group of guys that every manager needs a core group of guys to be very consistent, you know, have your good years. But you also need your non-core guys, your starters, but non-core guys to, you know, keep up their weight as well. And then you need a bench, you know, who called upon in case somebody goes on a 15-day disabled list or uh, misses a day or two for whatever, or it was a tough pitcher coming in. Um, The thing that I really respected him the most was he got everybody on the team involved. You never, he never really sat you for a length of time where you didn't feel like you were part of the team. You know, maybe I got three or four days where I didn't play, but then I would play two straight, you know, kept my eye, my hitting eye, my bat. Okay. Um, You never kind of felt like you were left out with him. Um, And all the coaches did the same thing. So whether you're the 24th or 25th guy or Kirby Puckett, he treated you the same. Was he, you know, obviously it's a little different, um, very different, frankly, but, uh, as a, as one of the role players, you never felt like you weren't part of what we're trying to accomplish here is win the pennant and win the world series. Well, with, with 91, 91 rolls around, did the, the 1990 season, did it really feel like the tools weren't all there? I mean, was it just, we were talking before we started recording about the, this, this most recent twin season where it felt like before the season, had a lot of promise, and then the wheels just fell off. Is that kind of what what went on in '90? Yeah, no question. The wheels the, the wheels definitely came off. We didn't we didn't have any consistency. We had some injuries, uh, but there was no aspect of the game that we were very consistent with. If we were hitting well, we didn't get pitching. If we were pitching well, we didn't score a lot of runs. So, and it was a typical season where teams didn't perform well, and you ended up where you ended up, last place. Um, but going into '91, we knew we weren't as bad as we were in '90. That was that was for sure. It was just we had to be more consistent. Um, obviously, we had major pickups in '91 with uh, with Jack Morris and then then Chili Davis. Those are two huge acquisitions from an offensive and from a pitching perspective. And and everybody stepped up. Um, we always talk about the word winning series. Well, we win a lot of series that that year. Uh, again, terrific at home. But uh, I really felt that when I compare the 91 and the 87 team, I think the 91 team from a pitching perspective was much, much better um, and gave us a very good opportunity to have a very consistent season. And like TK always says, your momentum starts on the mound every game. And we had very, very good pitching the whole year. Yeah, I mean, and that, that held up in the series. But with you mentioned they, they signed Chili Davis, which takes up the you know clogs up the dh hole for you but in that in that clubhouse you have chili you've got pocket you've got herbeck gladden guys who you know what is the how does knowledge get passed around in a big league clubhouse as far as does iron sharpen iron or are guys kind of you know in their own little pods of of hitting knowledge yeah i think what tk really preached is just play the game the right way now everybody says that which simply really meant to us was like Hold teams to three outs, limit the amount of errors, get your pitcher off the mound. We had a very good offensive team. Um, take the extra base, be aggressive on bases, um, you know, understand who's pitching, do all the prep work. So be a professional in all aspects of the game. Um, so when guys like Chili come over or Jack Wett obviously established great careers before they even came to see us in 91, but they kind of just bring winner. They had the winning attitude that, coalesced with Herbie and, and, and Puck and Gladden. And one of the unsung guys that I felt never gets enough credit is Greg Gagne at shortstop. Um, he, Big homer in game one. Yeah, he's a tremendous player, unsung. Um, and then, you know, the pickup of uh, Palirulo to, uh, to platoon with Scott Leas, a young third baseman. You know, everybody had really, really good years. And then, you know, the top it off, bringing up the rookie, Chuck Knobloch, um, just early – Early in the season, you kind of had a good idea. You knew how to handle a bat for a young kid and, and took took advantage of whether he was hitting leadoff or number two. Um, just a great, great acquisition. Mm-hmm. And then you got Erickson and and uh, Tappany. Tappany. Yep. 
Yeah, yep. just to, I mean, I, I mean, I've got, I've got the poster here in my in my office. So, <laughs> uh, so you guys you guys make it to the ninety one series with another worst of first team, um, the Braves. And where does having been there help? And, and can it hurt at all? Because a lot of the core that you're you've been there, Puckett's been there, Herbeck's been there. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the guys on the team have, have played in the World Series. Does that is there any hurt in that, or does it just help? No, it just helps. It just helps. I mean, I wasn't um, the the first game. You kind of knew what to expect. Whereas in '87, I had no idea what the heck was going to be going on as far as me mentally. And uh, again, I'm just a, a role player, platoon player. But um, the '91 team to me kind of felt like it was it was our time. It really was our time. Um, those guys had gone through some tough years before the 87 team and then they started to grow up together and I just got I just joined part of the, the group there but um, nothing nothing um, is bad about experience um, the pitching staff the fact that Jack had pitched in so many big games in his in his career he was going to be the, the guy who was going to lead us as a staff but you know lead Erickson lead Tappany um, then we had Aggie in the bullpen you know we didn't have really a weakness on that particular team and and specialty pinch hitter Rick Aguilera as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you go into that series. You mentioned you know previously when you're a pinch hitter, you think about what are the situations you could be in, who who might you face. Going into right. that series, did you have some some mat? You know, Pena comes out. It's late in the game. I might get in. Were there any other matchups that you were looking at or got you know situations that you had to be aware for? Pena Stanton was another guy. Um, that I from the from the left side if I was going to pinch hit righty, but you know they 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 had a nasty starting staff too. They had you know Glavin and Schmoltz and Steve Avery was had a good year. From the want to talk side. about Avery because we obviously Smoltz and Glavin have made it to the Hall of Fame. We still talk about them. We still we'll, we still hear Smoltz Smoltz all the time on TV. Yeah. But Avery's kind of the forgotten guy because of injuries. Right. Yeah. And he was, it was tough. He was nasty there. Um, so they had really three good starters too. And they had a very good ballpen too, but I always thought our, our ballpen was again on some with Guthrie and Willis and then Aguilera to, to close it out. Those guys had a tremendous series too. So, I mean, if you're going to, I mean, if you look back on that particular series, seven games, I is either four or five games were decided by one run. So your ball, yeah, your, your ballpen is going to, your ballpen's going to obviously I play a large role in that. Um, and they, they came up big for us and uh, it was uh top five world series, in my opinion, of all time. For me, it is, it is number one. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, the folks, the video is on YouTube. You can watch it. It's an hour, 20 minutes long. It's great. <laughs> uh, you know, big question with that series is how did Ron Gant manage to lose his balance on, on first base? <laughs> Really surprising for an athlete that good to, to just he fall just over. He just came in so hard. I like tell you, he came in so hard. <laughs> he did. You know, you watch it. He did come in like really, you know, really hard to the back. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess today, today with the replay, you might have a second, second opinion on that. That might've been an overruled call, but uh, you know, we got away with it a little bit. I think, uh, I think Kent used his size and his strength and his wrestling technique to kind of just get him off the bag just enough. What was he like in the dugout after he came back in? Can't. Yeah, no, he's you know pl- played like dumb. I no, I didn't do nothing. He was giving you know <laughs> that type of stuff too. So, but that's if you know Kent, that's his personality. He's very dry sense of humor. Um, you know, a gr- just a great, great person. Another big thing in this World Series is it was like a mustache Hall of Fame. You had Gladden, <laughs> you had Brian Harper who had the mustache mullet combo. You had Morris yes. who had an incredible duster. You had Smoltz, Lonnie Smith. No, no thought in. I mean, it was it was the early nineties, man. Anything I went. Know. I had a little mullet working, but not not too much. No, no facial hair for the for the Lark man. No. <laughs> I mean, it, there are a lot of guys rocking it. You see that? Uh, you you watch that in retrospect. A lot of lot of good looks. So, yeah, uh, yeah. getting into the the baseball of it, obviously, like I I imagine your nerves were probably shot at the end of the series like you said five five one run games and a couple extra inning games to to boot like not just not just one run so so game six did it i guess kirby's walking up to face lee brand yeah and i mean he's he's the guy he's the the you know the engine is did did anyone in the dugout call it did anyone do the you know i think think he's getting a hold of this one Oh, I, I think every time Puck went up to the plate, you knew something possibly good can happen. He had, so, you know, one of the best hitters that I've ever seen, one of the best right-handed hitters during his era ever. 
Um, so the thing about Puck, um, he, bad ball hitter, right? He'll swing at anything and doesn't really matter where the pitch is location wise. He's going to get the barrel to it. And, um, you know, Lee Brandt just let that pitch up a little bit. And as soon as he hit the ball, you knew it was going to go over back. You know, nowadays there's no, there's no uh, metrodome, but the plexiglass up there, even you could hit the ball good. You might hit the plexiglass, but we were hoping it was just going to go high enough to get over there. And he certainly did. No, I mean, and earlier that game, he got up into the plexiglass with that yep. that catch too. Quite the exactly quite the right one. Right. So, Jack Buck has the the famous call after after Kirby's home run in Game Six that we'll see you see you tomorrow right. night. So he hits that home run. I gotta imagine that it's like a like a needle of adrenaline to the heart. And then you have Game Seven. You know, less than twenty four hours later, how just from Kirby hitting that home run, like how do you how do you sleep after that? Oh, you don't. You don't. I mean, listen, game six, we have to win, right? We have to win that game. And the way we did win it was exciting and exhilarating. And, you know, you're so pumped up after the game. And even TK was like, he couldn't believe it. He said, you know, just one more chapter of the book is going to be played tomorrow. Um, so we're all excited. But we knew that uh, obviously we, there, was, there was a job to be done the following day. But the fact that Jack was going to take the ball gave us so much confidence. You know, again, we talked about this earlier in the interview that um, if there's going to be a guy that's going to compete and give everything he has, whether he has this stuff or not, it's going to be him. He's been in huge games before he's thrown no hitters before um, he's played in front of packed houses before. So he's the kind of guy that's not going to let the situation get to him mentally. And uh, as, as uh as, it, as we all saw, he did not let anything get to him. He took the ball every inning and would not leave the game until we got that one run in. Mm-hmm. So with with your role in that game, as it's going, you had mentioned that, you know, you got to be ready for Pena, got to be ready for Stanton. Were you kind of thinking, as long as Smoltz is in this game, I'm, I'm probably not hitting? Yeah, probably. I think the only guy that might have been pinch hit for in that particular time was a, a Greg Gagne situation. If there's, you know, sometimes during the year, TK would pull him out against the tough righty. But, uh, you know, with my situation there, um, if you remember in the eighth inning, I believe, is when uh, uh, Jarvis Brown ran for Chili Davis. And I didn't believe if the lineup came around again to Jarvis's position. He was going to hit because he was basically a pinch runner for us, a defensive replacement the whole second half of the season. So I think I thought that might be an opportunity for somebody, whether it was me or somebody to, to pinch hit for Jarvis. And that's exactly what happened. So did you start prepping at that moment? Like, especially after Chili's out of the game, did you, you know, start, did you go up to the weight room? Like what was the, what was the play there? Yeah, I went, I went up there um, again, you know, we're kind of running out of players again. Right. So I'm up there and, and uh, I think Paul Sorrento had pinched hit in the ninth inning um, and had a great at bat just didn't, you know, the last uh, didn't make struck out, but had a great at bat. Um, so we kind of run out with from left-handed pinch hitters. So I went up there saying this might be a chance. And then uh, once the inning started, I come back into the dugout in the little hallway there and just watched the whole thing. Um, you know, transpire there with, uh, with Danny's broken bat double. And again, the, the, uh, the thing that doesn't get enough credit is, uh, is Knobloch's bunt to get him to third base. Cause if that doesn't happen, it's, the inning could be totally different man on second base with one out, but he got the job done. Now he's got a man on third with one out and then, uh, Atlanta's got a decision to make, you know, you knew they were going to walk Puckett for the double play. But I didn't know if they were going to walk Kent or not, because obviously he's a double play type of guy, doesn't run very well, and he wasn't swinging the bat very well during the series. So I guess that was the decision they could make. Did they go him or they go with a pinch hitter? But if I'm Atlanta, I do the same thing they do. I don't want Ken Herbeck beating me. I want someone like Gene Larkin trying to beat me with the bases loaded with all the pressure on him. And I think I would do the same thing. And when did you know that they were actually putting the bat in your hands? Did you know it when after Knobloch laid down the bunt or was it when they decided to put her they back put on? her back on? TK just said, you're up, your turn. And uh, I will be very honest with you, Kyle. When he says it's your turn, then my legs start to turn to jello a little bit. And from the on-deck circle to the batter's box, I am as nervous as a professional athlete could be walking up there. Um and then if you remember correctly watching the game, a lot of time elapsed because Terry Pendleton, who was the third baseman, was trying to situate both the infield and the outfield because they both have to play in. Brian Harner was the left fielder, and they was trying to situate how close should he be playing. You know, I don't remember how good an arm Brian had, but 
all the outfielders how to play in in that particular time. Um, and again, I'm nervous, so I'm going back and forth, stepping out of the box, swinging the bat, and then I finally get in the box. And I will tell you that when I got in the box, for some reason, I kind of felt a sense of calm. Um, and the only, and when I look back, the only reason why I think that was because one, I felt I wasn't going to get struck out by Pena. I didn't feel like he had a strikeout pitch for me. Um, my concern was trying to put the ball in place somewhere, preferably in the outfield with a high pitch. And my other concern was I didn't want the umpire coming into play, meaning I didn't want two strikes to get on me because again, human beings hitting human beings, umpiring, you know, a pitch or two off the plate inside or outside, then the umpire starts to come into play. And I wanted to get the first hitter strike. And fortunately for me, Pena threw a pitch that is a perfect hitter strike in that situation. It's up and away. I'm not going to get jammed. I just got to get the barrel to the ball and hit a nice fly ball over Hunter's head. And the rest was history. And seemingly you knew it right away. Yeah. You you pimped it before the tournament. <laughs> Pimping was a thing. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it a pimp, but as soon as it hit the barrel, I knew it. The, I mean, it's just a sigh of relief. And I raised my right hand and I jogged the first base and, um, half the team went to Danny at home, then half the team ran out at first base to, to congratulate me. And then, you know, it's it is such an enormous feeling. I can't even tell you that you play a team sport from you know mid February until late October with the same guys basically, and you bust your butt and you, your ups and your downs. And uh, for someone like me to have an opportunity to drive in a winning run of a World Series, it's it's ridiculously crazy to think about. Um, guys who are so much better than me, Hall of Fame careers don't have a chance to have one at bat in a World Series, yet I have a chance to bat in a 10th inning of Game 7 and drive in a winning run. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy to just even think about. What time did you get home that night? I had not. I did not. I did not get home. In fact, I didn't sleep for like almost 40 hours after that. I got up. Um, Good Morning America had me and TK on the following morning at the Metrodome. Did not sleep at all. And then, you know, talked to every every media outlet for a while I had my friends and family constantly calling me and talking to me. Um, and it's about two, two days later, I finally crashed for about a good 24 hours. And, um, you know, I, I kind of felt like Kirby Puckett for like two days because everybody wanted a piece of me. It was kind of funny. What was your next at bat like after that, like in spring <laughs> training or something? Like, how do you get back in the box and be like, last time I was batting, I was facing Pena to win the World Series. Uh, and now it's spring training and some guy with like the number 97. <laughs> it's different, I'll tell you. But I, um, I'll be very honest with you. I, 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 I still... I still took my off season very seriously. I mean, I wasn't, you know, on the banquet circuit like some of these guys were because, but I had my fun and, you know, didn't pay for a meal for a few, for a few weeks, you know, and all that good stuff. It was a good time for me and the team in, in uh, the winter of 91. Um, but, you know, next spring training, again, like I'd mentioned earlier that uh, I'm not the type of guy who's going to be starting and I've got to fight for my spot. And, uh, you know, my spring training and bats obviously weren't as pressurized as the World Series, but I kind of took um, took them all important. So you, you get two more years of the Twins after that. When did you get the sense that things in baseball might be winding down as far as your career goes? For me, um, so I got hurt in uh, in '93, um, tore my Achilles, and uh, did, played played about a quarter of the season, and uh, took me a long time to rehab it. Came to camp in 94, very, very, I didn't even think I was going to get a contract from the Twins in 94, frankly, but, you know, they gave me a contract to, to try to make the team. Um, and I think, you know, in hindsight, I think if the Twins felt that this team, the 94 team, was going to be one of the, uh, you know, a veteran-laden team, they probably would have kept me around again to play the similar role, pinch hit, back up Kent. Um, but I, I didn't think they felt that this is going to be a playoff team in 94, and so they went with a younger guy, David McCarty, who was out of Stanford, I think a number one pick three or four years prior to that. Um, big prospect, had very good numbers in the minors. So you kind of knew when you saw David in spring training and playing the position I played back in Kent up that he was going to be the guy. It was going to be either me or him, um, go with the younger guy or go with the guy who's been around. And they went with the younger guy. I didn't have a bad spring training, but um, I kind of understood the situation going into camp. And so what made the decision to, to just retire and, and go ahead and hang it up? 
Great question. So after I uh, after I got released, my agent got on the phone. Pittsburgh and uh, Cleveland at the time um, called me, said they were interested in me being a role player, going to camp with them, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I will tell you, Kyle, mentally, I was done as a ball player, meaning this, meaning I knew every offseason to me, I had to really get after the training to to prepare myself for spring training. So I was always fighting for my 23rd, 24th, 25th spot. Um, mentally, I did not have that in me anymore to fight. And if I didn't prepare in spring in, in, the, in the winter offseason to do that, I kind of felt I was going to do the team a disservice anyway and probably not make the team. So I just felt in that regard, I had to shut it down and, and uh, call it a career. Seven great years with one team, two World Series teams, one great swing in a World Series. I thought I'd shut it down and, uh, you know, be a, be a guy that's going to get another job in the real world. Did having that kind of self-awareness make retiring a little bit easier? Was there still a mourning period of, you know, you've been playing baseball for 20 years now? Yeah, there was no mourning period. That first year of not playing was fantastic. Um, just not not having a regiment, not getting to the park at 2 o'clock. The only thing I missed was the paycheck. Um, but, <laughs> I was going to uh, say, what was your first summer vacation like? Oh, it was great. I played a lot of golf, you know, did whatever I wanted to do. Um, so it was, it was very, very different. Um, and remember 94 too, the year I got released, it was a strike year. So I didn't really miss too much baseball. So it was kind of different in that regard. Um, and then when 95 uh, started, what I missed was spring training. I missed that again, my, my, the habit of going down to Florida, to Fort Myers, to see the guys I hadn't seen all winter time. And then, get ready that was a kind of a tough spring training for me and then when the season starts it's like that's when it really hits that you know you're not longer putting a uniform on and then you're not longer a ball player how long did it take you to get back into i know you coach youth baseball and and do you know legion teams and stuff how long did it take you to to get into that um well i coached my son growing up obviously but uh i didn't get into high school baseball until he got into uh middle school that type of deal so um I didn't, I didn't know if I was going to enjoy it. Um, I've seen a lot of good coaches at the youth level. I've seen a lot of crappy coaches at youth level who kind of ruin it for kids. And uh, I kind of felt like once my son got to middle school, I, I could have more of an opportunity to help with the, the high school kids age. And, and in part, not only, not only experience, but in part, the understanding that uh, how to get over the ups and downs of the game, because it's such a tremendously mentally draining game. And you see a lot of kids, um, not do well physically because they don't understand the mental side of the game. So I think from an experience perspective, that's the biggest benefit I can give to the kids that I coach is I understand how, how they think from a perspective of what's going on wrong in their, in their game or their particular week. So if you could go back in time and give a, a pep talk to that, to 22 year old Gene signing out of Columbia, right? As he's about to, to start his professional career, what does that pep talk look like? You know, I will tell you that, that my biggest regret and I tell us to kids all the time who take the game so, so seriously, they kind of, you know, have this tunnel vision. Um, I was so worried, Kyle, about staying in the big leagues that I didn't enjoy playing in the big leagues as much as I should have. I was always fighting the fight every day, mentally grinding it out. And if I had just been more aware and took a step back and said, you know what, let's enjoy what I'm doing here because so many people want to be in this particular position. Um, I would have enjoyed it more. I would have had more fun outwardly i always had fun but i was kind of like a stone-faced guy very very low-key guy kept everything inside me and i admire guys who just let their emotions fly a little bit and uh have fun and be the rah-rah guy occasionally and i was always a good team guy but i kind of felt like i i kind of played the game too withdrawn if that makes any sense mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i got a quick rapid fire for you and then i'll let you get out of here yeah favorite big league ballpark uh, to hit in without question, it was the Metrodome <laughs> from an opposing team. I loved playing in Yankee stadium after I got that first hit. It's such the history and the fans are incredible. Best pitcher you ever faced. Uh, from the, when I was hitting righty, Randy Johnson, when I was hitting lefty Roger Clemens. What is facing Randy Johnson? Like, uh, it's impossible when he's on, it's impossible. You know, it's just, I think I struck out uh, two times, three times a game. And he struck me out like almost nine or 10 pitches. In one game, it was ridiculous. Sliders, you know, backdoor sliders galore. Which Ivy League school do you dislike the most? <laughs> Probably Princeton. 
The two stuck up. <laughs> Best food city while you were in the big leagues. Which which place oh. when you were getting there were you like, I can't Come wait to on, eat? Come on, Kyle. I'm going to rub New York. There's no better food than New York. That's fair. That's fair. I should. <laughs> I, w- I walked into that one. I should have known that. Should have known that was the that was bit. Last one I got. Boston's this one. Pretty good too. I, I ask everyone this. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, the night in double A is when you're traveling 15 or 16 hours in the middle of the night and you, you know, you're sleeping and all of a sudden the, the bus is almost going off the cliff. <laughs> it's always, you know. always my favorite question just hearing who's the, the nightmare stories on the road from, uh, <laughs> from minor league baseball, Gene Larkin, that is all I've got for you. This has been a huge pleasure for me. Thank you so much. for Kyle, You do a great job on this podcast. Keep it up, man. Continue success. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Gene. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Huge thanks to Gene Larkin for joining us, talking us through his career. If you enjoyed this episode, if you haven't listened to our backlog, we've got a great one. We've got first-round picks. We've got 40-second-round picks, everything in between. Go check out our past episodes. Uh, and make sure you subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com for all amateur baseball and prospect news. We'll be back in two weeks with a great episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Thanks for listening. 